The following podcast is a live recording of a radio show first broadcast by Fresh FM with assistance from New Zealand On Air. Fresh FM is a community access media station based in Te Tauihu, the top of the South Island, New Zealand. If you or your group would like to know more about how you can have a program on our station, please contact us. Visit our website freshfm.net for our contact details. Welcome to For the Love of Wine on Fresh FM. I'm your host, Kirsten Rotskart. Today's show is called Looking Back, as I've chosen to share highlights and interesting comments from some of the nearly 50 shows that have aired since we launched For the Love of Wine in August 2020. This is a two-part show, the first one airing now, the second one will air on May 15th. In part one, I'm focusing on some of the many women in the New Zealand wine industry. A subject close to my heart, as some years ago I wrote and published a book called Passion, Pinot and Savvy, focusing on women winemakers in Aotearoa. I interviewed 16 women and a few of them have since featured here on For the Love of Wine. The first one was Patricia Miranda Taylor from Chile. She's lived and worked in Marlborough for years and she came to the studio in September 2020 and talked about her background and life in New Zealand. So what happened to me was uh, I was traveling around the world doing vintages uh, in different countries and one day in 2013 was actually, I tasted a bunch of uh, Sauvignon Blancs from Marlboro in California, the place I was doing vintage. And I really uh, fell in love with the wines and then the vibrancy and the freshness and the typicity. And so I thought, oh, the next vintage I like to do is in Marlboro. And so I applied for a job. Um, I got a job for vintage during 2014 vintage and then I since then I I got assistant winemaker job and then I got a better position as a winemaker and and things just developed since and then I met my husband here in New Zealand I have a daughter and I've been here 16 years now now you are a woman in this industry and if we look back uh, it has always been uh, a very male-dominated industry, the winemaking industry. But in later years, worldwide, a lot more women have started working uh, in the industry and embarking on, on lovely careers, including you, Patricia. But when you started in winemaking, learning uh, about the, the industry back in Chile, mm-hmm. maybe 25 years ago, there wouldn't have been many women then. Yes, it's correct. I... The profession I studied, we were probably a third in a group of 200 students. But the reality is, at the time, a lot of us, my, you know, my friends now and the, uh, the women at the time, you study and then you work one or two years, get married, look after the kids, and then you don't do, you know. Uh, yeah, because how does winemaking, which is a very full-on job, yeah. how does that uh, match up with being a mother and having a family? So it is possible, uh, but it's, uh, it's challenging, and especially was challenging more in the past because used to be you no know, industry that was flexible, and and it's seen like in production because we you know we we make wine, so it's production work um, type of or production type of job. Uh, you have to be there all the time, and 
nowadays is changing a lot. The mentality is changing a lot because it's possible to do it in different ways. Winemakers and all uh, positions, like uh, the one that um, Leo and I, we are, uh, we work a lot from the computer, so it's based on a computer um, job and tasting. You make wine on a computer? Yes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> So we don't have really much to do in the cellar, like, uh, you know, physical work. As, um, and so it's a lot of work. Part of job is planning, organization, logistics, and tasting as well, of course. But then you can use your hours to so be flexible in regards of that if, if you, you can. Um, so it's easier to have children in today's winemaking world than it was, say, 20 years ago. I would say so. But it's not that it was more difficult before. It's just the mentality has changed and people are more open to understand that this is possible. And it is possible. I mean, my job at the moment, uh, working for Wither Hills, which is part of Lion, is one of our policies to be flexible and then and then we all do it so males and females and so everyone is a lot more open-minded and therefore we help each other rather than than you know making problems for to to the others when they are not there so we support each other and so i think it's a it's, it's a lot different than in the past i don't think it's the same in other countries yet, but it's moving to there rapidly. A lot Definitely. more women yes. in the wine industry. Yes. Winemaker Lynette Hudson is based in Auckland, but is involved in wine-related projects all over the country. Her big love is Pinot Noir. She's even known as Pinot Diva and feels fortunate she's been able to work in Burgundy, France, where the world's top Pinot Noirs are from. I'm very lucky to have had such a long period of time working there and with some of the most amazing producers in the world. My first experience was with uh, Christophe Rumier, so Domaine Georges Rumier and Chambon Musini, which is such an incredible producer. And uh, Christophe is an amazing man, makes incredible wines. So that was one of my first vintages in Burgundy, working with Christophe and just my love of Pinot Noir happened instantly almost then and it was from then that I took over looking after all the Pinot Noir at Pegasus Bay and trying to understand how we could make New Zealand Pinot Noir but achieve that level of quality, finesse, balance um, that Burgundy uh, achieves. So that's and another then, thing I was thinking about, uh, sorry for interrupting here, but but is it very different, uh, the way they make wine in Burgundy to how we make wine in New Zealand? Or was it? Or No, no. I think um, certainly I've taken on a lot of techniques and thought about a lot of things um, that they do, but we can't forget that winemaking and how we make Pinot Noir is very much a fashion trend. You know, we go through styles and changes. Back in the mid-90s, no one really talked about whole bunches in the ferment for Pinot Noir, and now everybody talks about it, everyone implements it, and now it comes down to 
how many, uh, what percentage do you talk about? 40%, 50%, 100% whole bunches in the ferment. So when I, what I mean by that is you handpick the grapes and you literally put the whole bunches in, the stems and all, because the stems impart a lot of flavour. They give a lot of tannin and texture to the wine. And I think also with climate change and getting warmer, it's a way of keeping the wines fresher, a little bit more spicy, it does elevate the pH, but, you know, it's learning to handle that. And it's about trying to tame some of those overripe characteristics that you can get with Pinot in these hotter vintages because Pinot Noir is all about cool climate. Yeah. So, how, how do you think New Zealand uh, Pinot Noir stacks up to the uh, Burgundy? Um Certainly there's some amazing producers in New Zealand and the quality of Pinot Noir in New Zealand has increased hugely so. And um, and that's from growing grapes, understanding our soils, our terroir, how to handle the grapes and the maturity of the winemakers as well. So like I remember having um, a Burgundy tasting a few months ago with six New Zealand Pinots and six Burgundies. And I got picked all of them correct except for one. There was one Kiwi one that I went, that's Burgundy. And that was so cool to me because the quality is so good. And that was Maud's East Meets West. Amazing wine. Incredible. So we're doing very well in New Zealand. Um, I think we are and we're improving and improving. The thing about Pinot Noir is there's not many cool climate sites and growing sites throughout the world so we've got that on our side you know you've got Oregon small parts of Australia but um, really there's not that many other countries that can achieve the cool climate that is essential to make top quality Pinot Noir so we are very lucky. Anna Flowerde owns Tifarera, a boutique Marlboro winery with her husband Jason. Anna is originally from a winemaking family in Australia and she and Jason bought Tifarera in 2003. We heard Tifarera was for sale and it just, it just ticked a lot of boxes for us. It was quite a unique property, you know, it's got the oldest vines in Marlborough. Uh, yeah, planted was, in 1979. Yeah. yeah, and then quite an array of varieties as well too was quite attractive to us. It's not that um, we're not, you know, very proud of the Sauvignon we make, but I guess we like showing people that... Marlborough is not just a one-trick pony. So, and, and when we just like the history of this place, it had real provenance, I think, especially because I'd worked in places that sort of had real history um, and weren't, you know, like a new kind of made-up brand that was, you know, the decision of a, of a marketing team or whatever that was a bit more of a contrived story. We really loved the, you know, that Tafarira was part of Marlborough's wine history. Why was it for sale? Well, it had had the original owners, um, who Alan and Joyce Hogan, who established it, um, they had it till about 97, I think, from what I remember. And then it had been a second career for them anyway, and then their kids didn't want to take it on, um, so they decided to sell. And then another Kiwi couple owned it, and their names were Roger and Christine Smith. And then uh, Roger, unfortunately, passed away after I think they'd had it for about a year and a half, two years. And, and so we bought it from Christine, his wife. So she uh, obviously, you know, was, you know, was difficult and decided that she'd um, sell. And that was, I guess, fortuitous for us because it was good timing. You know, we'd sold Avignon in Australia. It was, yeah, in the sort of early, early 2000s before 
land in Melbourne became ridiculously expensive. Tifara Ra is a certified organic vineyard and Anna explains what it takes to be organic. I've sort of explained to people that I think from organics, it's really what we don't do than what we do do that makes us different. So, you know, we don't use any herbicide. We use an undervine weeder instead um, to control the weeds undervine rather than using any um, anything to kill the weeds. We use um, compost and, like, natural fertilisers and things like that rather than any MPK or any kind of, you know, chemically produced fertiliser. MPK, what's that? Uh, like, it's uh, nitrogen, um, phosphorus, potassium, like a right. uh, sort of, you know, or blood and bone or, you know, people pile on urea and things like that. So, yeah. And then from a canopy management perspective, from actually managing the vines, we don't use um, fungicides or insecticides. We use, uh, well, I guess nothing that's systemic. We only use things like sulphur and oil and things like that to control disease. And a lot of organics is, is being preventative because you don't have a quick fix option. So we spend a lot of time throughout the growing season from basically, you know, bud burst, which will be happening in a week or so, through to harvest, you know, just tweaking a lot of things. You do shoot thinning and you do bunch thinning and you remove leaves. So you, because you, you have to be preventative, we sort of always prepare the vineyard for the apocalypse <laughs> um, because you don't have a quick fix option to, you know, to spray if something goes wrong. But the process of certification, I think, is it's great that you wanted to talk about that because that's, I think, really important is just the amount of integrity um, and rigour that goes into that. It's, you know, it's a four-year process to get fully certified from your first, so your first sort of registration year is just that. It's a registration year and then you have a two years of conversion and then in your sort of fourth year, that's when you're fully certified. So you get um, audited every year and, you know, that involves soil tests and every all your records and everything like that to show. Um, there's also, like, random product testing and things like that that come into that. So and I'm then, just going to stop you for a second because I'm just imagining those beautiful organic vineyards, uh, of which there are quite a, a number nowadays in New Zealand. But uh, what if the neighbouring company has um, traditional uh, vineyards? Uh, could there be spray that would come across to your uh, vineyards? Um, there can, but with the organic standard, part of when you first get registered you have to let all your neighbours know so you have to actually send them a letter and sort of get it back from them signed uh, that's part of your original kind of documentation to get set up pretty much tell them to bugger off and not bother you yeah, yeah they <laughs> might we've been really fortunate we've got really great neighbours when down one side of us is actually the the town of Rimwick so that's like houses um, and then we've got the road as one boundary and then we have one neighbour who's our other two boundaries another vineyard but they were really supportive of us being organic. Um, you do need to have a bit of space. Like you need, um, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's about 10 metres of kind of clear space between their first row and your first row so that you shouldn't have any issues with any spray drift. And if you are closer than that, you have to um, like quarantine the outside couple of rows and you have to put those into a non-organic product. As you heard, it is quite arduous to become a certified organic winery. Selling and marketing wine is another aspect of the wine industry. And next up is Yvonne Lorkin, a Hawke's Bay-based marketer, judge, promoter and lover of New Zealand wine, which all sounds fabulous. But is it actually fun having to taste, say, a hundred examples of Sauvignon Blanc or Syrah at 10 o'clock in the morning? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not fun, but it's a, it's a learning experience. Experience. And um, you know, and you just you just got to do it. And you, what you've got to do is, as well as go, look, it's not about me; it's about the wine. I've got to put my head in the space of going right. I've got a couple of minutes for each wine. I'm going to give it my best shot. 
I'm not going to let my mood or my the bad sleep I had the night before get to me. I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to make sure that I give every wine um, the best possible chance. There you go, yeah. But how do you remember, I mean, I'm sure you take notes, of course, but, you know, let's say the first three, they really stand out, and then it's up and down, then the next 20 and the next 30. And when you get to number 98, do you remember what number 78 was? You know, how is it really fair tasting that many wines? Uh, I'm not trying to blame you, but but the whole system of wine judging. Is it fair tasting that many wines in one go and then selecting a few that are that really stood out? I think um, that's a really valid question, and I know that a lot of people have that same, um, you know, that same, um, yeah, that same kind of issue. You know, is it is it fair? And um, you know, like I said before, you've got to give every wine its due. And if you if you're concentrating on that wine for, you know, X amount of time, you know, and I, you you do the math. If you've got 50 wines in front of you, they all get you know at least a minute and a half to two minutes for your initial notes. And then you go back. You know, you always leave the wines on the table so that you can go back and check and back and check and rewrite and and relook. I'm always the one that sort of ends up being at the end of the at the end of the group saying, please don't take my glasses away just yet, you know, because I just want to you make You want sure. to revisit, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. also we do, like, for example, with our um, with our dish magazine tasting panels, we will have all of the same wines in front of all the judges, but I'll say to, you know, um, judge number one, okay, you start at wine number one, and judge number two, I want you to start at wine number 20. I'll start at the, at the last wine, and I'll work my way backwards so that I'm ensuring that none of our team get any kind of palate fatigue at the same time. You know what I'm saying? So yep, yep, yep. Everyone is fresh. Everyone's palate is, is a different degree of freshness for that wine. So when there are any questions, if there's ever any debate about the quality of the wine, if there's any kind of, I don't know, discrepancies, major discrepancies in the scores, then we can go back to it. We can, you know, those things will be highlighted. Um, Does that ever happen, that there, that there are huge discrepancies, that you're really far uh, apart? No, not huge. I can't. I can't recall when there's ever. So been quality one. is quality yeah. for everybody. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Personally, I'm I'm a great fan of the way you communicate about wine. You have a unique and fun way with words, and you make wine reviewing fun, in my humble opinion. And yeah. and you you know you some you take the sometimes very serious nerdiness out of it. I just want to give our listeners um, a few examples. So very <laughs> short sentences here that I came across. Gosh darn gorgeous new Chardonnay from the good folk at Giessen. Next one. Fresh, snappy, and nothing snoozy about it. Grilled citrus notes on the nose merge like a zip with soft nuka and brulee flavors in the mouth. Mm. And here's another one. Unleashes a laha of luscious stone fruit succulents. And the last one, <laughs> last one. Well, there's no reason why that comfortable, cuddly wine can't also be whip crack sexy at the same time. Hey, you know, I love it. But but how do you review your writing style? Oh, do you know what? Um Sometimes, sometimes I look at a review and I think, "Oh my gosh, Yvonne, that's definitely not your best work." But it, it, you know, I'm just inspired by the wines. I'm inspired by um, the, the seasons. I'm inspired by stuff I've seen on social media or what's happening in the movies, what's happening in my garden, what's happening on TV, what's happening. You know, what band did I just go and see? What what's playing on the radio? What kind of, you know, I kind of I like to. Um, associate the, what, the, the wine that I'm drinking with, um, with so, real So when emotion. you taste and review at home, um, yeah. do you always listen to music then? 
No, I don't. But I'm a huge music nut. I mean, that was that's my that's my background, you know. But I, I listen to to music all the time when I'm not writing. So, you know, like I find when I'm writing, I need the quiet. But I'm remembering everything that I've you know been listening to or or eating or drinking or yeah. watching or whatever. Yeah. Wendy Healy is married to James Healy, and they established Dog Point Winery in the 1990s with Ivan Sutherland and his wife, Margaret. Wendy talks about her and Margaret's involvement. Well, Margaret's got incredible skills. She'd already been uh, behind Ivan in in previous businesses or still ongoing, so um, she definitely took more of the role. She was administrator and marketing guru and I just supported her I, I, I that's what I pretty much am I'm, I've always been a behind the scenes supporter of other people that's my best way of s- describing my role as an historian I was charged with reading the history of the <coughs> area and um, and I just couldn't come up there was no proper story that was linked to wine so it was just authentic uh, Ivan and Marg uh, live across the road in Dog Point Road, and yeah, it just, uh, I, you know, and it was quirky, slightly quirky, but and and but I, w- I must admit, when I told people what the name of the winery was going to be, I said, but I promise there won't be dogs on the label, <laughs> and of course there aren't. <laughs> no, 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 and there certainly are great wines. Now, if we go back even further, before you, James, and business partner and friend Ivan set up Dog Point, you both worked for Cloudy Bay in the nineties. An iconic New Zealand winery, and many say that it was the success of Cloudy Bay that helped put New Zealand on the international wine map. I was worked in the cellar door. It was I had no intention of uh, working in that in the field or even working at the same workplace as my husband. But somebody at the that was currently working at the cellar door was going away to have a baby, and she asked if I could just look after her job for six months or so and uh, I worked there for 29 years in the end permanent part time bringing up the children uh, helping James James was did a lot of travel both with Cloudy Bay and Dog Point and that's yeah so I sort of kept the family going right did you ever Mm. tag along on those trips Um, latterly yes not not for Cloudy Bay but yeah finally Marg and I once we started making money from Dog Point Marg and I allowed ourselves to travel as well so we uh, sort of separated as couples, we'd take charge of different markets as the two couples. Right. What market was, were you in charge of? We just adored Asia and uh, Spain and, yes, parts of Europe we, we decided to pick off. Wendy and her husband James left Marlborough a couple of years ago and moved to Nelson, where they now own a small vineyard named Abel. Um, <laughs> I never thought I'd be this involved, so we've actually ended up being the vineyard slaves. But uh, yes, yeah, so we've, I'm learning all about the very, very beginnings of what makes wine. So that's planting, or replanting, taping, clipping, um, and thinning. So a lot of physical work. Oh my gosh, yes. And Did you ex- expect that moving to Nelson? Uh, no, but it's made me appreciate very much uh, the work that goes on in the vineyard. Yeah. Mm. And Wendy, when you look mm. back, I mean, you with your background in, in as a historian, um, how do you see your life having suddenly, you know, not suddenly, but that it became what it is, you know, all <clears> the wine? and I just feel incredibly lucky. Um, I didn't grow up in much at all in a... In a, in a wine-loving family, but I just think wine ticks 
everything to do with fun and and travel and delicious food and and people. It's it's the most amazing people industry and just about everyone that works in wine is great. We are heading from Marlborough to Central Otago where winemaker Jen Parr, originally from Oregon, USA, resides and makes delicious wine for Valley and other small wineries. In 2020, she was named Winemaker of the Year. It was fantastic. It was a great way to start what became quite an interesting year, but we started off with, um, yeah, it was just very, very special. And how did you celebrate? Uh, There was a big dinner in Auckland where the award was announced, so that was quite a special night out. And then just back home with the Valley team with a bit of champagne, and and, um, then we just got back to business. But, yeah, no, it's, it's a kind of lifetime achievement that... You know, once one, it's it's the most special thing that that's ever happened in my career, and it'll stay with me forever. In fact, you were also nominated for this award the year before, but didn't win then. Um, but this year, you won because, uh, as the judges said, Jen Parr is a born and bred Oregonian who has found a home among the Pinot Noir vines of Central Otago. Her infectious zeal for the grape has seen her produce an outstanding array of terroir-driven wines. Now, is that a good description of you? <laughs> it sounds like something Bob Campbell said, but uh, yeah, I think uh, I mean I'm fortunate to get to work at Valley, where you know I, I've, I'm part of a legacy of wines that are focused on expressing special places. So uh, certainly, um, I've been given the opportunity to do that. But I think more than anything, I was recognized for my commitment and passion. Um, there's a lot of wonderfully talented winemakers in New Zealand who also have passion, but I think for me it was more about um, the spirit and enthusiasm and the kind of wholeheartedness, the wholehearted way that I embrace my career more than, you know, championing wines on the table. At least that's the way it felt to me, and that made it even more special because it really is a life, not just a job, and I think it was recognition of my commitment to this life and the community that I get to work with. There's something special about you and Pinot Noir, especially which they mention also in the little award speech. What is it with you and Pinot Noir? For me, Pinot Noir, it, it's it's magic. I um, I often I've, I think I've said before that it's it's a grape for intellectual hedonists. Um, I often talk about how you know my mother used to say when I was a child we had a lovely rose garden and she used to talk to me about how there was no perfect rose, and it was sort of resonated me, for me with Pinot Noir because Pinot Noir you're not seeking perfection it's about all the nuance and, and it's the little imperfections and it's the little character marks that make Pinot Noir so special there are other varieties that are more about the sparkle and shine um, I sort of think of Bordeaux wines as supermodels you know they, they last forever there's no flaws and it's that shininess that attracts people whereas with Pinot Noir it's, it's those things that stand out that that um, maybe it's, it's less about um, being polished it's more about um, expressing a place and a time Let's talk a bit about your background, because you've done things quite differently. You're originally from Oregon, USA. You studied at Stanford University in California, and then you went on to jobs in New York and London in the global financial software industry. (laughs) So tell me how you went from that specialized career to becoming an accomplished and highly regarded winemaker here in New Zealand. It's a lot of, uh, I guess, created luck and, and chance. But I, when I left Stanford, I didn't know what I wanted to do. All the things I thought I wanted to do, to be a lawyer, to be a teacher, to be a politician, all things, um, particularly the politician and teacher, was about trying to help the community. Um, they didn't 
seemed to quite resonate with me after I got my degree. And Stanford's a very engineering-orientated school. And in the 90s, it was, you know, a lot of doctors. My class had more people who went on to study medicine than I think any other class in, in Stanford's history. Stanford's been around a long time. And, uh, and engineers and banking, I mean, it's the heart of the Silicon Valley. So none of those things, I studied literature and English, and none of those things really fit for me. So I just applied for, for jobs that sounded interesting. And in a roundabout way, I ended up working for a startup software firm in marketing. And after about a couple of months, I overheard them talking about how they wanted to find someone to do sales support in their New York office. And I'd never been to New York before, but I sort of said, oh, what about me? And so that's how I ended up in New York. And that's how I kind of segued into sales. And from there, I was going to go to Brazil to open an office because I wanted to live overseas. But eventually, the sort of um, young company was taken on a pathway to becoming a public company. And they got some serious sort of um, officers in who said, oh, we're never going to open an office in Brazil. Why don't you go to London? So I ended up in London. And that was, um, there were a few moments in America that definitely lit the light for wine for me. But it was really going to London, which is a place where you have access to so many wines from so many parts of the world at so many price points, um, wonderful wine education courses, and, you know, a train ride or a short flight away to, you know, the epicenter of the history of wine. That was when I, I really started to spend all my free time tasting wine, studying wine, drinking wine, um, learning about wine. And then one day I realized I wasn't that interested in finance or software. And I thought, well, you know, you've got one shot to do what you want to do. What do you want to do? And I thought, well, let's let's look at how wine's made and go from there. So that's when I went to France in 2002 and uh, picked grapes for a, a brilliant sort of eccentric winemaker. And that was good fortune that we crossed paths. And from there, it just started my journey. So you've done it differently to most winemakers here in New Zealand who will go and do a university degree uh, in enology or other things. You've you've sort of done it as an apprentice, really, around the world. Yeah, by the time I got started, I had just paid off an expensive private education. And I realized that I, I, I knew about um, general time management, people management, all of those things which are involved with being a winemaker. And what I really wanted to learn was about, you know, the the art, the the mentality, the, you know, the connectivity, how, how wine is made from an intellectual standpoint. I've never set out, I don't call myself a wine scientist. I'm a winemaker. Uh, the types of wine we make, y- yes, we understand the, the science behind it, but we don't make them based on numbers and figures and spreadsheets. They're really based on what we, a sensory and historic approach to winemaking. So I decided I could spend money on a a master's degree, which a lot of people do. There's a wonderful one-year program out of Lincoln to get all of that exposure to the bits and pieces of wine science that I needed. Or I could spend the same amount of money and travel the world and learn from people who inspired me. Uh, so that's what you did. That's what I did. And and I don't regret it. And when younger or people starting out in their career, I mean, I wasn't young when I started per se, but when people who get into wine ask me about it, I think the education and getting a degree is is a great approach if you know that's what you want to do. At 18, I, well, first of all, it wasn't legal to drink in the States. So there was no way that I knew I wanted to be a winemaker. But if you, if you know, following a, um, a tertiary education for it is, is a great way. And it doesn't necessarily have to be wine science. It could be microbiology. It could be chemistry. I'm a you know, food scientist. But if it comes later for you, then, you know, commitment to learning hands-on is, is also, a, from my perspective, a very valid way to, to learn the craft. 
The last woman in today's show is Jane Skilton, a master of wine, a judge, an educator, and a wine writer. I asked her to describe what a master of wine is. Oh goodness, that's a that's a huge question. I don't think you can possibly pigeonhole masters of wine being any one uh, type of person. I think first and foremost, you have to be somebody who's obsessed by wine. I think that would give you a clue if you're going to in, sort of partake of lots of education and tasting and learning and what is quite a grueling process then if you're not doing it for the love of the subject then I think it's it's difficult to find the um, passion and the enthusiasm to do it but um, gosh there are winemakers I think a lot of people think it's a very English institution and it's not anymore as you said there are over 30 different countries now represented so um, lots of winemakers so I was at a tasting in Spain not so long ago and the um, MWs who make wine showed their, you know, their uh, wares, as it were, um, and they were from all over the world. So there's lots of winemakers, there are uh, distributors, there are educators, there are writers, all ages. I think some of the earliest ones probably in, into their 90s now. So there's a huge uh, range of, of people, I think, just united by, by a love of wine. Yeah. So why did you decide to become a master of wine? Ooh, that's a that's a, uh, okay. So I did maths, physics, and chemistry at school to go on and do engineering, and quickly decided that that was possibly the worst decision I could have made in my entire life. I had no interest at all in the subjects. I passed them, but you know, kind of desperate. I quite like maths, but I was simply hopeless at the others and studied hard, passed my exams. But the, the idea of going on to university to do it would just filled me with horror. And I don't come from a wine-drinking family. You know, my mum and dad would buy a bottle of wine from the supermarket or whatever, but not, you know, not really all that interested in the subject. But I got a job working for a wine merchant uh, in the city where I um, grew up, which was Nottingham, and went to work there and just loved it. There was just lots to learn. You know, I was kind of keen. There's lots of hard work, obviously, carrying cases of wine and stocking shelves and washing glasses. But I thought, wow, I never really thought about wine as a career. Um, but I liked everything about it. And then I went to work in London for a master of wine called Elizabeth Berry, who was probably one of was the greatest influence on me. She was uh, an amazing woman. Her and her husband, Mike, had a fine wine shop. And she just lived wine, you know, from sun up to sundown. She was always trying to find new wines, old wines. She had a really strong policy of training people. So she'd always open a bottle and then give us all the taste and ask us about it and tell us something about it. You know, that really kind of in inclusive atmosphere to work in. She was very supportive. Both her and her husband were supportive of females working for them. So I know sometimes men would come in and try and talk to Mike and he would say, look, you know, my wife is a master of wine. My so, you know, the people who work for me are all really well trained, you know, speak to them. Oh, good on him, um, good on him. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. It was just, you know, that's why sometimes I'm sort of stunned when I hear stories of women not being treated very well, because I never had any, uh, to me anyway, there was no, um, there was never a problem. But they also ran formal wine tasting. So Monday and Thursday each week, they would run at a local venue, a proper sit down formal wine tasting and so they would invite speakers or they do it themselves and so there'll be a range of different topics some will be expensive you know kind of a chateau from bordeaux some would be inexpensive some would be unusual my first tasting that i ever went to was the fine wines of new zealand i always remember that one uh, very oh. clearly when it comes to drinking and enjoying wine uh, what are your own personal favorites what do you like drinking that's another hard question 
Oof. Uh, well, if someone gave me a glass of Gewurztraminer, I would never say no. I just adore the stuff. Um, when I worked for Liz, one of her passions was Alsace. So uh, for me, I really love those aromatics, and Muscat or Gewurz or Pinot Gris or whatever. You know, I just think they're just... What about Riesling? Mm-hmm. Uh, Bring it on. What do you think about Riesling? Uh, what do I think about Riesling? I think that I don't mind it, but I'm kind of tired of people telling me I have to like it. See, that's the problem with wine. We tell people all the time what they have and haven't to like. So, you know, apparently, you know, it is the, the best grape. Well, I'm not convinced it is. You know, I quite like beautiful examples of Chardonnay. But, but do you know what I mean? I think we have to kind of sometimes as wine people just let people get on with it. If you don't like Riesling, we don't like Riesling. But you don't have to be told you're an idiot because you don't like it. You know, I mean, I like liver. You know, but the number of people when you invite them for dinner who say, well, I don't eat awful. Well, I don't turn around and go, well, you're an idiot because you don't like liver. Do you know what I mean? So someone's told you you're an idiot because you don't really like Riesling? I think some people, they look at me as though I'm sort of, it's like when, I won't say it because obviously uh, it'd be (laughs) woeful, but, you know, like when I was born, you know, people say, what vintage are you? And when I tell them, you know, which is clearly the worst vintage in living memory, if not in the history of time. Um, and they always look at me slightly pityingly. And I have to say, well, you know, my mum and dad didn't <laughs> have a baby and then think, oh, my goodness, she was born in the worst vintage in living memory. You know, we've failed as parents. But I think wine people can be a bit judgmental. So, you know, you've got to like certain grape varieties. And, you know, if you don't like other ones or you say you like something, then people always look a bit like, oh, dear, poor old you. But my feeling is doing what you want. You know, if you enjoy it, good for you. <laughs> This wraps up part one of my Looking Back show. Part two will air on May 15th. Thanks so much for tuning in to For the Love of Wine here on Nelson's Fresh FM. The podcast you just listened to was a live recording of a radio show, first broadcast on Fresh FM, the Top of the South's community access media station, with support from New Zealand On Air. The funding of Access Media makes these podcasts possible. To find similar programs by other community access media stations, go online to accessmedia.nz.